Hey, welcome to another episode of G220 Radio. This is episode number 535. 535. Mike and I are going to be talking about Proverbs chapter 17. We are back here on G220 Radio, excited to continue this series going through the book of Proverbs, coming to chapter 17. And uh, it's been good, man. It's been a good series so far. We've kind of been moving through this. There is 31 chapters in the book of Proverbs. And Mike, I don't know, have we caught up or passed your pastor yet? Are you guys still going through Proverbs? Or are you guys I mean, done with Proverbs? <laughs> no, we are like... Way past. I think, uh, I mean, I haven't heard any of his sermons in the last couple of weeks, but I think he's in like Proverbs 13. But kind of how he's doing it is like more of a in-between series type. So he just finished the book of Luke. He's going to do chapters 13 and 14 in Proverbs, and then he's going to probably start an Old Testament book, maybe a New Testament. But yeah, so yeah, just kind of he just kind of kind of throws them in there, um, because I, as we see, it kind of can get repetitive, and you're saying mm -hmm. the same thing. So kind of right. having breaking it up a little bit, um, still be able to preach through it, but then it's not like feels like you're repeating yourself. Right, right. Well, that's one of the things too, as as um, preaching it as a series in the pulpit is going to probably be a little more in depth. Although I, I do think we've we've done a pretty good job of of really getting into it, but it's going to be probably over a longer period of time. I know when we started this, uh, I think we started behind your pastor, and I, I don't mm -hmm. remember how many he had done, but uh, we eventually have uh, surpassed that. But only because we're trying to do a chapter at a time, or a half of the chapter and then the next uh, the next time we come back and so we've been kind of working through this and as you said there is many of much of it that is repetitive it's continuously seeing the same things because I, I mean as i was reading it right before the show just kind of refreshing again and and looking at my notes um i was thinking man this is stuff we did cover last week this is things that have been covered in previous shows again this repetitive nature of what is there in the proverbs and that, that's why when we think of scripture, right, Mike, when, when scripture is repetitive, there's a reason for it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, you think of Peter abolishing his readers, that he's going to remind them of things again. And so it's good to be reminded to think afresh, but there's also this, you know, we're sinful creatures. We have what they call the new newetic effects of the falls that our, our minds don't work the way they should. And we are forgetful people. We, I mean, the Israelites forget, forgot what God had done for them, saving them out of Egypt. And they murmur mm -hmm. because they don't have any meat. Well, that's the type of people we are. And so having these kind of repetitive and usually coming from maybe from a slightly different angle. So it's not exactly the same, but these kind of pithy st statements that are seemingly repetitive to remind us and to refresh us of God's wisdom. Cause we need that as people who often forget 
Yeah. And that's one of the things um, I think we've said uh, multiple times here on the program over the years. Uh, George Alvarado, who has been a huge contributor to the program over the years in the past, uh, has also said this, that, you know, we continue to preach the gospel to ourselves because we need it. You know, and so when we go to church and we we are sitting under the preaching of the of the word of God and the gospels being proclaimed, being preached, we again we should be eager to hear the reminder of the gospel being preached because we can be forgetful. We can forget the things that God has done. We can forget the grace of God at times and the mercy of God in our lives as we are going through the sanctification process. And so it should never, anything that we hear repeated should be a reminder to stir us up to the things which God has done and the things that God is speaking to us in his word so that we can walk in such a way that is pleasing to the Lord in uprightness, as we've talked about a couple of weeks on the show, being upright, uh, as which the, the Proverbs speak to, um, that as opposed to being the fool, being the unwise one, right? And so we're going to get into that more here tonight. And so I want to say uh, hello to J316 Ministries. Um, he's in here watching with us. And so if you're watching, you've got questions, comments, uh, concerns, anything, you can email us at g220radio at gmail.com. If you've got show ideas, again, you can email us at g220radio at gmail.com. We would love to hear your feedback. We would love to hear that. So well, I guess we can go ahead and jump right into this. Proverbs 17. And we do read from the ESV Bible. And so, uh, because uh, we are ESV onlyest here, no, yep. just kidding. Um, the extra special Bible. Yeah, we. I prefer the ESV. Mike is an NASB guy. No, know, I do. Uh, I read the ESV. He reads the ESV, but he's always promoting the. What, what year is it? The. <laughs> it's a. T- <laughs> I mean, jokingly, yeah, I promote the NASB 2020. The yep, update. There you go. So, I don't even have so, the NASB 2020. No. Off. Yeah, you should just pull it up. I've got the ESV is what what I have up on my screen. I'll be reading from that. I also have the CSB in front of me only because I left my ESV. Bi- I have other ESV Bibles out here, but the one that I use the majority of the time has bigger print. And so these ones have smaller print. And because my eyes are not the way that they used to be, uh, I like the bigger print. So I have the CSB Spurgeon Bible in front of me. <laughs> I wonder if Spurgeon. No, there was no CSB, right? So. No, it's a whole new yeah. translation from yeah. um, Broadman and Holman. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, it used to be the NCSB. Well, I thought it was the H. Then the HCSB. Holman Christian then, Standard Bible. And then they dropped it. Dropped the H. Christian Standard. Christian Standard. Still published yeah. by the Southern Baptist. Yeah. But so. not used at Southern Seminary. Just, just think about that. What do they use? The NIV? ESV. Ah. But didn't didn't they just publish? Oh, that was Moeller. All right, as a sidetrack, right? Didn't he just do an NIV? Yeah, study um, Grace and Truth. Grace and Truth. Yeah, yeah. actually, yeah. I might hold on. Um. Mike's got one, and we lost Mike's audio. He's so excited to show yeah, the Grace and Truth uh, study Bible that he took out his General. audio equipment. <laughs> yeah, and then what people may not know. Let's see if I can. Is your pastor in there? Yeah. Um, Managing editor, Mitchell Chase. Yeah, that's his pastor right there. That's my pastor. So if we find any 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 discrepancies, we'll come into your pastor and be like, "Hey, look." (laughs) I mean, Doctor Mueller had to approve it, so yeah. 
<laughs> pass the buck. They are right. going to bring it out in some other translations. So this is the NIV. Um, oh, you mean they're going to bring it out in some other, like maybe the ESV version? And I mean, that's what I've been told. That would be nice. But I can't. I'm not tell the you biggest fan of the I'm NIV. I'm not. I'm not super opposed to the NIV, but I'm not the biggest fan of the NIV. Um, yeah. But I mean, I don't hate it either. You know. Uh, but I mean, just not so. the biggest fan of it. So here we go. All that to say, let's get into Proverbs. All right. Better is a dry morsel with quiet than a house full of feasting with strife. And when you think of this, I, I think about, you know, getting together with families and our holidays and whatever, you know, celebrations and things like that. And, and what it's saying here is in these big times of feast, it's better to just have a dry mor morsel or it's better to stay at home basically in peace and eat a peanut butter and jelly sandwich than to be in a big feast with a bunch of family members and there's nothing but strife and contention because a political conversation comes up or a religious conversation comes up or a sports thing comes up and it's just strife, right? That's the example that kind of comes to my mind when I think about this proverb here. Yeah, you, you know, that comparison is striking. Um, it's a dry morsel, morsel. It's probably bread. So there's like no no liquid there to make it better. I mean, it's just like eating stale bread and how tasty that isn't, really. And so you have a very not tasty meal, not an appetizing meal, and yet it's quiet. There's peace there. Mm-hmm. As you make it, as you're alluding it, so it's better to have an unappetizing, ordinary life, and it be peaceful, than to have a house full of feasting, great partying, and there be strife, mm -hmm. and envy, and and discord. You, you, we've kind of we've we've looked at a little bit of this, and this could even be related from. Last week's show, try to remember. Um, I don't remember. Uh, but to to think about just the that better is peace than strife, no matter where you are, because you think of like a festival, it's and especially in their time, it's very lavish. It's probably at the king's house or someone of influence. Mm -hmm. There's a lots. Um, there's a lots. There's a lot there. I mean, this could even be, you know, another type of um, festival feasting or something like that. But the idea that there's strife there. Mm -hmm. There's no peace. Um, and you kind of see the the sinfulness brings out. And so to I think it's a, a call to us to to enjoy our peaceful lives than to be among the rich and famous, which always seem to be in some sort of controversy or in strife with someone else. I mean, that's how you know, you get some of the entertainment media presenting it. 
And and just to to think about um kind of this um, Well, I think it's it's you know the Lord calls us to content to be content. Right? And so there's this finding contentment whether you have little or much you're content with what you have, but it's saying it's better to have little and peace than to have all these feasts, all this stuff, material things, whatever, and yet have constant strife and, uh, you know, bitterness. And, and as you said, envy and jealousy and, and that which tends to happen. And, and I, I like to, to look at this as a Christian, right? Um, because obviously we're reading God's word. We want to look at it within the confines of the church as well. Um, when you come together for these gatherings, you know, that we have at our church, I know you have it at your church and many churches have where they come together and have a meal together, a potluck, or, you know, um, the church provides a meal or something where you come together and sit down and eat the majority of the times what you see is peace. It's this, it's this picture, this taste of this big wedding feast that's going to come. It's, it's this taste of partaking where there's not the strife, there's not the division. It's just fellowship and love with brothers and sisters in Christ. And then you compare that sometimes, again, to a family get-together where not everybody is a Christian and there can be constant conflict because especially if you are a Christian and you're trying to live that out in light of your faith in, in context of your family members and friends, not again, beating them over the head with it, but trying to live it out and you have beliefs. And if a topic comes up, you can't separate your faith, your beliefs from the conversation. And, you know, it, it can bring those tensions and strives. And, and that's why even within the context of the church gatherings, when they have those potlucks and those things, you can always tell when a brother is contentious to some degree, when everybody's getting along and talking and enjoying the fellowship over the word. And there's somebody that always wants to be argumentative. Right. So that's a lot I just threw out there, but if it yeah. applies to you, it applies to you. If it don't, it don't. That's Nothing all I got. To say. All right. Yeah. Verse two, a servant who deals wisely will rule over a son who acts shamefully and will share in the inheritance as one of the brothers. I mean, you think about this too here where you've got a servant. I think of, I think of, let's see here, Joseph and Daniel come to mind, right? Here you have Joseph. He's sold into slavery and yet he has favor from God as a servant. He is doing all these things uh, to please the one who is, is, is over him in whatever context he finds himself to the point where he is now head of Egypt just under Pharaoh. Not a son of Pharaoh, but Joseph. And then you think of Daniel and the wise men. You got all these wise men that are Babylonians and all these other wise men that have been brought in from these other nations or whatever. Um, but here's Daniel, the servant, who is then elevated to this higher position because of their faithfulness. You know, And so I think that's what we're, we're seeing here is a wise servant will rule over the disgraceful son, the, the actual heirs by blood. And you see this here uh, in those examples that I gave. Yeah. And I think there, there's a powerful image here that a servant who is not blood related becomes part of the family. 
there's there's an adoption happening here mm. and that the servant who is wise he is doing things i mean i think joseph is a good example rule over a son who what acts shamefully so there's there's a sense in which the son is acting contrary to what is the norm for the family he he's what we've been seeing foolish he's not listening to the wise counsel of his father and so the the servant who in one sense you can say is acting like the son and the son is acting like a foolish person and there's a reversal there because it's the servant will share the inheritance as of as one of the brothers he is equal with them and that full adoption when we we think about even in that context about even our own position before God. Mm -hmm. Now, God's son did not act foolishly. We will not reign over him as this verse is, but we see what faithful servants and in one sense, enemies become children of God. And understanding our adoption helps to kind of bring it about that we will share an inheritance with the perfect son. We will rule over the angels with the son. And so there is this kind of this truth in there and the reality in which slaves, faithful slaves, will rule over shameful sons. But it also points to the reality of just our adoptions as sons of God in the and how God brings about his promises through his own son who takes upon a, a in one sense a, a shameful death. Mm-hmm. So in one sense, he is shamed from the father. And so just to kind of to think about here, even in Proverbs, seeing this kind of adoption understanding that will be fully kind of fleshed out when we come to the New Testament. Yeah, absolutely. All right, verse three, the crucible is for silver and the furnace is for gold and the Lord tests the heart. And this this is what we titled the program here tonight, um, The Lord Tests the Heart. And when you think about this, when you think about refining silver and gold, it, it, it's subjected to like tremendous heat to purify it. To, and precious metal is separated from it. And, and this is what takes the, the, this gold and metal and, and or silver and it purifies it, right? And when we think of this in the context of us as being God's people, um, the, the crucible is for silver, the furnace is for gold, and the Lord tests the heart. The Lord tests our heart. So when that heat is put on, it's going to do one of two things. God's going to use this heat to reveal the evil that is in the hearts of those who refuse his grace 
as opposed to those who are his, it's going to be there to refine the heart of the child of God, uh, to, to mold us into a Christ-like image, you know? Yeah. And to, to think even about what is happening when they're testing it and the crucible and the furnace is the refinement process. And in the end, you would hopeful to have pure silver and pure gold. And so even the Lord's test the heart, I think we can even to see this in God's own testing of our faith, refining us to be conformed to the image and the likeness of his son. Mm-hmm. And to, I mean, and the fact that our works will be tested like gold, like silver. Paul makes this argument in Second Corinthians. And to, to think about what God is use, is doing in these in this time, in these times of testing. You're, when he's testing Job, will Job be faithful? That's kind of your your that's kind of the question the reader is left with as you're listening to Job and Job's friends and he seemingly to crack and maybe in in one sense going moving closer to his friends and his argumentation and we're wondering is god is the devil right that job will not renounce his faith and this this test to see or even abraham when he has to take the promised son to the mountaintop to offer as a sacrifice. The Lord is testing whether they believe in the promises of God. And Hebrews tells us that Abraham believed that God could raise his son up. And to to think about the stories in which we see God test those and to understand that God will also test us. He's also given us the power by the Spirit to overcome these tests and to strengthen our faith in Him and His promises and have a better understanding of who He is and a deeper relationship that only God can provide. Well, let me so, let me throw this at you, Mike, um, with the the testing, right? Because the question comes to my mind that I would think that a listener, maybe one who's listening, may come and say, well, God doesn't tempt anyone to do evil, or, or they'll think of the tempting. And so what would, be, what would you say as the difference between God's testing us as opposed to tempting us to do evil? I think you, I mean, kind of the first thing I think about is Israel. I mean, you have Jesus. Let's just go. I mean, you can do Israel in the desert, Jesus, same story, different people. Um, but just to think of Jesus and his testing in the wilderness. 
is God tempting him? I mean, we're told the Spirit leads him out into the wilderness. He's out there for 40 days. He's tired and vulnerable. And we see it as the test because it's representing the better Israel, the Israel who failed to test in the desert, who complained and murmured. But what what's this testing? Is did God tempt Jesus in the wilderness? Well, no, it was it was the devil. And so there, there's a difference in kind of testing and tempting. Tempting has this idea that you're trying to pull away from good into evil. God can't tempt people. That's what James tells us. Because mm-hmm. if he's tempting people, he's not, in one sense, good. He's trying to get people to sin, and that's not who God is. The devil is the one who tempts. Our sinful nature tempts us. But in those temptings, God uses those to test our faith. And so... Well, the other question that would come to mind, and and again, I want to do this for the sake of the listener, is um, what about the testing then? Is it because God's trying to see what man's going to do or how they're going to respond? Uh, because this is a question that does come up quite a bit. And so h- how would you then respond to, to, to that kind of thought then that would come into someone's mind who says, okay, well, if God's testing them, like he tested Abraham, like he tested, you know, uh, others in scripture is, is it because God doesn't know what they're going to do? I mean, as someone who's reformed, God knows all things. And so there has to be, it's not that God doesn't know what he's going to do. I'd say somebody who's biblical. <laughs> I mean, that too. This is biblical, but, but reformed, yeah. Armenians, Armenians say they're biblical too, so I'll just to save the debate. Being reformed and and thinking about it, that God using temptations to test is how God strengthens the believers. God is using something that is, in one sense, sinful, tempting people to sin. That's usually the confines of it. To strengthen them, either by them using the escape that he has given them, and trusting in his promises to get through it or convicting them of their sin and that they repent and change their ways. And that God uses temptation to test our faith, to strengthen our faith. So the testing is not pointless or meaningless. It's just not God's like, Oh, I'm just going to test them because I can No, the testing provides the sanctification that we need to grow in our faith. That before and after the temptation, there should be a growth in faith. 
whether we see our failure in the temptation by giving into it and repenting and turning back and to to remind ourselves of God's mercy and grace and further strengthen our faith in the promises of redemption or by using the means in which God has given us because God tests, but he always gives a way out. There is a way to Mm -hmm. pass the test. God isn't trying to trap us, but, and so when a, when a Christian finds the way out and he, he overcomes the temptation that strengthens their faith in the power of God and what God can do for them and through them. And so when you have this testing and tempting idea, in one sense, one is tempting is to to pull someone into sin, and the testing is to strengthen their faith, to make them more like his son. And to understand that is kind of the Christian life that I will be tempted by the devil, by my own sinfulness. It doesn't even have to be the devil, just the sin that remains in my body or by the culture that surrounds me. There will be temptations to sin. God uses those to test our faith with the goal that our faith is stronger on the other end. Yeah. And that's the reason why I, I asked those kind of qualifying questions here, because that's that's the reason why I titled this program here, episode number 300 or 535, The Lord Tests the Heart. Because these are the things, as I was reading through this, that came to my mind that I believe are the questions that I've had asked of me when you think about the Lord testing our hearts, uh, testing us. And and these thoughts that kind of come up and questions that kind of come up, I think it's important that we kind of fish that out a little bit uh, so that we can, you know, make it clear that um, it's not that the God that God tempts us to do evil, but through the tempting of evil that comes from Satan or or others in the world that is tempting us to do something wicked or to give in to some sinful things, God is also utilizing that as he's testing our hearts, but he's not causing us or trying to get us to do these acts. And so it's important for us to kind of, you know, iron that out, work that out so that we can uh, properly understand uh, what is meant there. All right. Verse four, it says an evildoer listens to wicked lips and a liar gives ear to a mischievous tongue, a mischievous tongue. I think about like, you know, misery loves company, right? So mm-hmm. those who who love to do wicked things are going to surround themselves with wicked people that are going to give them the things that affirm them in their sin. We think of right now, we're in June. This is known as Pride Month, right? We celebrate pride this month. This, the sin of pride being elevated above the sin of homosexuality to kind of prance it out there into the public and be proud about it. And so when people support it and you go into any establishment and they've got rainbow flags and clothing, if they're selling clothing with all kind of support for the LGBTQ community and pride and going to Burger King and getting a Burger Queen, I don't even know. I know they have like a, uh, 
uh, rapping or something yeah. where they support it, right? Um, just a lot of these different places that support it. This is wicked lips. And so the wicked love to come to where people are affirming them in their sin rather than calling out that sin, rather, rather than speaking against it. They're going to love that. A liar loves a mischievous tongue because it affirms them rather than convicts them or rebukes them. Yeah, I think about um, Paul's admonition to Timothy to preach the word mm. in and out of season. Why? Because false converts have itchy ears and they gravitate to those teachers. I think when we, we look at the evil deal, evildoer listens to wicked lips, there's in, in one sense, when we think about it, there is camaraderie there. They share the same evilness, the wickedness and evildoers. Yeah, birds I of mean, a feather flock together, right? Yeah. You think about copycat um, crimes where you have a mass shooting and then you have a couple smaller ones maybe later on that are very similar. They're, they're copycat and they see it and they do it type of things. And, and a liar gives ear to a mischievous tongue. Again, you know, that, that idea that they're attracted to what they are. An evil do an evil doer will listen to those who are evil like him. Mm -hmm. And a liar will do the same. And, in one way to become better at what they're doing. And so I think this should be admonishments of what are we listening to? What are we drawn to? And, and to think about, am I pursuing ungodly forms of entertainment? And this is going to be, there is kind of a gray area of here. I think there is some, some give or take. There are some strong boundaries um, in that. But I do think, what are we, who are we listening to? Where, where are we getting advice to live and, and how to live? I mean, you talk about, you know, those who promote the LGBTQ community and and the wickedness that's there. And and how often just not even those who are in that community who would identify with one of those letters, but they're the allies, mm -hmm. the ones who um, well, listen, or maybe more destructively is critical race theory and the destructiveness it brings about as it tears down the structures with no idea of how to build the structures there to, to replace what they're tearing down and how people just eat it up, the intersectionality and in a way, I think it calls us to pay attention to who 
we are listening to, where are we getting our information and are we pursuing in one sense, worldly wisdom? I think I'm just going to do it. Christians should think about these topics and we shouldn't just assume Fox news is always right. As that tends to be where people flock to, or maybe now would be, um, well, you bring up Fox the News. Daily Caller. Yeah. Yeah. Daily Wire, right? Or yeah. Daily Caller. They're similar. Are they the yeah. same? Or I don't know. But, I don't but know. conservatives, right? So yeah. I just did a review on G220 Ministries' YouTube channel of What is a Woman by Matt Walsh. And it, I thought it was a good video. Let's see, we got Facebook user. I don't know who you are because it just tells me Facebook user, but uh, it says it's sad. I was just talking about that today. It is a mechanism that is being used to control people. Um, but this idea in this video was he, he was exposing the foolishness of those who um, are promoting this idea that you can't say what a woman is. Nobody can define what a woman is. And you think about um, the, uh, oh, it's, it's uh, Jason Andrews. Hey, brother, glad to see you here. But there's this idea, right, that uh, with the LGBTQ community, nobody wants to be able to say what a woman is. And so Matt Walsh is exposing this foolishness, but never appeals to truth that is found in God to do so. So, mm -hmm. and, and he'll also he's Roman Catholic, and this is going to rock, rock some people's feathers, not for those who normally listen to us, but he's in the same state as these people who are foolishly not able to identify what a woman is because they're all unregenerate apart from Christ. Now, he at least is seeking to try to be consistent with truth, although he's not in Christ if he's following the Roman Catholic system of teaching, of faith plus works even though they will say it's not faith plus works, but that's ultimately what they believe. Right. And these other people who can't identify what a woman is, is in that same state. They will stand both guilty before God on the day of judgment. Right. But because this conservative guy is saying this, this conservative guy is out here doing this. I've seen many Christians. And again, it's not something that I would say was a bad documentary, but it didn't, it wasn't grounded in where do you find truth? By what standard can you say you care about truth, right? If it's not God, it can be subjective. You may appeal to truth because you've been created in the image of God to do so. But again, it goes to what you're saying. Just because it's conservative, the conservatives take it and they run with it and say, ah, here we go, here we go. And you can make somebody look foolish, but, but what are you ultimately appealing to? If it's not to God, by what standard can you say anything is true? You know? All right, verse uh, five here. Whoever mocks the poor insults his maker. He who is glad at calamity will not go unpunished. Go ahead, Mike. So yeah, you have one who is mocking um, the foolish mock. And we should, should recognize that this is foolish people. They're mocking the poor. So they're mocking someone. We don't know what they're marking mar 
mocking the poor about, it may be because they are poor, but they're mocking them. And what they're doing is they're insulting the maker, his maker, the poor's maker, mm -hmm. the one who's created them. And who is glad at calamity will not go unpunished. I think when we see then here this the it's a parallel statement that they're rejoicing in the hurt of people or even the death of people. And in that case, the maker will not they will not go unpunished they will receive justice for what they're doing. I think when we think about this verse is what is our inclination when it comes to those who are poor and those who, and in one sense have felt the, the sinful effects that have fallen on this earth, Wh whatever that calamity may be. And I think it tells us it, it makes us to think about, do we see these people as image bearers or not? Are they, Are they made in the image of God? And I think when we we consider, well, why is mocking the poor an insult from God? It's because God created them. They're a reflection, and they, they should be a reflection of God's glory on the earth for creation to see and rejoice in God. That's what images were for, was to, to show dominion, to show, um, to bring kind of glory to the king, and that's what we're called to be as humans. So when we mock other humans, when we are rejoice that people are destroyed, we don't reflect our Maker, who, I mean, in one sense, He picks the poor in spirit to become sons of God. Mm -hmm. He's with those who face calamity. And to, to make fun of them, to mock them, and to be glad that's happening is to directly oppose God's nature towards these people. And God will judge them. They will receive the just judgment for what they have done and to to think about even in i mean shamefully maybe at times when we say well that does they deserve that that's what they needed i think that might be kind of just thinking through it spinning off as i as i come to me and, and kind of working out it seems like to be contrary to this, to assume, I know some people have said this, that Hurricane Katrina, when it hit New Orleans, was judgment for the immorality and that they deserved it. I think 
again, this verse would say we shouldn't think that way. We shouldn't delight in even the judgment of the wicked. And to, to kind of fully think about what it means when we start mocking the poor, when we are excited when people are suffering, especially when we're all made in the image of God and in one sense all deserve his just judgment for our sins. Yeah. All right. So verse six here is something we kind of even touched on last week on the program, but grandchildren are the crown of the aged and the glory of children is their father. What a joy it is, right? To be a parent. We're both parents here. Um, love our children. Sometimes our children can really test us and be, it's a, it's one of those things that God has used, I'd say to test us in our growth of patience. Mm -hmm. Long suffering is a better word. I like, I like long suffering better than patience. Right. Um, but just to test us because children can, especially when they get in their teenage years, really be trying for you. But, uh, ultimately Children are a gift from the Lord. They're a gift. And even so, the, the grandchildren, when you become a grandparent and be able to have this large amount of grandchildren, this legacy that you can leave behind. Now, ultimately, as Christians, we want to leave behind a legacy that our children and their children and their children would know the Lord, would know the Lord. Now, ultimately, we cannot make somebody become a Christian, but we can teach them the things of the Lord and pray that God would bring them to saving faith. But yes, children, they are a crown for the aged, for the elderly, those who have these grandchildren, right? The glory of a children is their father as well. Yeah, we did mention it. I think it's to point out we didn't mention it last week, to point out that it's those who are righteous that get to experience this joy. Those who, even if they don't know God's saving grace in their life, living in a way that would externally match what God has commanded us to to live is brings about these joy. I think to to consider, which may be even harder as I kind of glance at um Bruce Walkie's commentary on this passage, um, he makes note that in the ancient world regarded children as a mark of divine blessing blessing and reckoned them among the things that give man weight and influence in the community while childlessness was a curse i think to to think about i mean that's completely contrary to how we live in the western world today children are a nuisance children are a problem they get in the way of our careers i mean these are kind of the arguments that those for abortion make. But that 
that children are like the crown. I mean, the children are like the crown on the edge. You think of like, we don't have obviously in America in our context, we don't have kings or queens, but you have QE2, Queen Elizabeth II in England, and she dons on her crown and and the prestige and the, the royal and the shininess. God is telling us that's how kids are. Grandkids are to their grandparents. Yeah. The pride and joy. And I hear about it. You talk about how raising children is difficult. Having grandkids is the best thing. Mm -hmm. And like, it's a whole different, it's change. It's, it changes them. And to, to think about how even here, God's desire for us to, to be ones who train up our children in the Lord, the blessing he gives to the third and fourth generation of those who follow him. And, and you see this kind of now working out in this wisdom of how do we think of children? Well, they're a blessing and the glory of the previous generations. And there's the legacy that comes with that, I mean, you can just, I know, and like in our church where there are multiple generations in a family that believe the gospel and are faithful to it. And that's a good thing. That's a celebrated thing. And as Christians should strive to, how do we train our children to train their children so that their children will change their tr children in the fear and admiration of the Lord. Mm -hmm. Because that's having grandchildren and having children is the glory of the parents. Yeah. Verse seven here says, fine speech is not becoming to a fool. Still less is a false speech uh, to a prince and prince. So, Again, when you, you look at this at its uh, face value, <clears throat> the, the King James says, excellent speech. It says, excellent speech becometh not a fool. Uh, the CSB that I said I have out here uh, in front of me says, eloquent words are not appropriate uh, on a fool's lips. And so they don't go around speaking things that are building up of another individual or good words to someone, they speak foolish. They speak folly. They speak words of hate, slander, lying, abuse, right? They speak filth, gossip, all sorts of depravity is what a fool speaks. And so it's telling us here, fine speech. That's not becoming of a fool. That's not what's going to come out of a fool. Um, still less is false speech to a prince. And so... It's something I think we should keep in context. As Mike, as you already spoken with the last one, we don't have kings and princes in our country, but yet we still can see the principles that apply from the, the book of Proverbs here. Yeah, I think I kind of go back to the show George and I did with tongue waggers on cursing. And some of the things that I've even you even hear about like 
and we covered it. Like people who curse are are much are more trustworthy because they don't care about your feelings. Like they're they're just telling you how it is. And when we read verse seventeen and we think about our our speech, the power of our tongue to curse and to bless that excellent or fine speech is not what fools do. They don't, they don't care. There's, um, in one sense, it's almost the, like thinking about a fool is one who babbles. He doesn't care about the words he says. He just says what he wants to say. And then, you know, the fool in the, in the second part of the verse, still less with false speech, lying mm -hmm. to a prince. Like you, you see the carelessness of their words, um, even in front of people whom should be respected. You know, you shouldn't go... I mean, just example here in Louisville from over the weekend, the mayor was downtown and a guy punched him. Now this isn't words, but there is that kind of that foolishness of just going up to someone who should be respected, even if I disagree with them politically to be respected. And yet they just act foolishly or say foolish yeah. words. Yeah, and I think we, we've seen in our culture, in our society, how there is a lack of respect for authority. Doesn't mean you have to agree with anyone. Even like we think of the president of the United States. I didn't vote for the president of the United States. I don't support the policies of the president of the United States. But he's still in that office. God has put him there. Uh -huh. And so there should be a level of respect that we hold for that office. Even if the one holding that office um, disrespects the office or denigrates the office by their policies, by their behavior, there's still a level of respect to the authority that God has placed in that position. And we just don't see that in our society much today. We, we, we see a lot of, and again, we can go back to the Proverbs. We can go back to this God giving us wisdom. Even the unbelievers can take wisdom from God's word here. And they can apply it. Obviously, they won't take the spiritual aspect of it, which is even greater than the the aspect that you may take in the the natural. But still, you can apply things here, and, and we just see a lack of respect. I'm gonna pull an audible here. We're gonna do this last verse, and then we're gonna close it down because it's been a while since we've done a show at the normal time, and it's been a long day as well and hot, and so. We're going to do this last verse here, and then we will come back and break this up into probably three shows uh, rather than, than two. So a bribe is like a magic stone in the eyes of the one who gives it. Wherever he turns, he prospers. And so uh, the CSB says it like this as well. A bribe seems like a magic stone to its owner. Wherever he turns, he succeeds. And I believe the NIV says... A bride is a charm to the one who gives it. Wherever he turns, he succeeds. So just a couple different translations there. Mike, go ahead and speak on this one. Yeah. So 
to think about bribe, there is, we should understand it as being a, a way to subvert justice. So, um, the eyes of the one who gives it, the one who has it, who's trying to give the bribe, thinks as the bribe is a magic stone to get away from what he's doing, what he mm -hmm. deserves. And, I mean, I don't know if you've done this, but maybe you've done something wrong, especially when you're a little kid and you don't want your sibling to say something. Yeah. So you bribe them into to doing something. Right. That kind of, that impenetrable kind of object. I will give you this and then I'll, I'll prosper. Mm -hmm. I, I won't receive the judgment and go with it. I think it should call us to think about when we do those types of things, that the bribe is like a magic stone in the eyes of the one who gives them. And to consider that, and we've mentioned otherwise, that there is a sense in which calling what a bribe is it's almost like your get out of free card in Monopoly. That's what you think it is. And to 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 play it. But what what's really happening? I mean, you're trying to get you're not taken accountable for your own actions. And to think about the point of the bribe and to get away with and not to face the punishment you deserve is frankly godless and we yeah. do and there's a sense in which we do this with god if i do enough good works i can bribe god in not sending me to hell mm. and that's the thought of the natural man that is the to Think about Nehemiah Cox. That's the the remnant of the work, the the work of the covenants of the covenant of works mm -hmm. from the garden, penetrating our hearts and our rebellion against God. That we, unlike Adam, can do what is right and bribe God to give to give us into heaven. Yeah. And that's exactly how how man tends to see it. Uh, the Christian man, right? It, it's it's very. We talked about Roman Catholicism earlier. It, it's a it's a system of works plus faith, right? It's faith plus works. It's even though they would try to say that it's not, it is a works based salvation. And yet Christians, Protestant Christians, do the same thing, and they don't realize it. You know, if only I do enough good, it will outweigh the bad that I do. If only I go and do these good deeds and this good service over here, it will outdo the bad that I do, right? Or these things are earning me some merit with God. I just posted on Facebook today. I mean, this idea that, that people will think that their ministry, quote unquote, ministry is blessed, but yet they don't belong to a local church, aren't faithful in their attendance to a local church, aren't participating or serving within a local church. 
and you think God is blessing that, you think that you can go do this service in other places, do certain types of ministry and be okay with God. As if you said, like you said, Mike, you're bribing God in some way while you neglect the things that God has called us to do in being not forsaking the gathering together of the saints or serving within a local body or being a member connected, committed to a local church. These, I mean, these things happen. We, we think ultimately of when we think of bribes, we think of politicians, you know, we talked about, you know, uh, rulers and whatnot, but politicians or judges, you know, and somebody comes forth and they get a bribe and we see what the outcome of these things tend to be when they get caught because it comes to the light in most cases comes to the light. But as you said, even within Christianity, we tend to do this with God. It can also happen within churches. I mean, I, we love the local church, but it can happen with pastors who get caught up in so-and-so gives and so, because so-and-so gives and is giving gifts or paying for your trip to some other country or whatever, you tend to pull back any kind of rebuke or correction that may need to be there. It's kind of like a bribe within that. But ultimately, I think yours was uh, the best example that we do do that with Christ, you know? So it can happen within the context of being a Christian as well. And that's where we should be most concerned, uh, that we are not uh, thinking that somehow we're earning justification before God. We are not. We cannot. It is only Christ who justifies. Yeah. And the verse may seem like to that bribes are successful. The English is hard. I was kind of reading a little bit on how to understand it that successful that, in the that, eyes of the one who's doing who, it. Yeah. But it's not that it's still under, he thinks he's going to mm -hmm. prosper. Get away with it. Yeah. Get away with it. What I think, and also what um, Bruce Wilkie says here, I think is, to, to help us and to remember the fool's potent instrument succeeds only with depraved officials, mm -hmm. but not with God and, and the wise. Right. And then he will later cite Felix who was waiting for Paul to give him a bribe to release him. And Paul never does. And, and you see even kind of Paul's obedience to kind of what this is saying, that it is better for him to trust God and then to bribe the official to get out. And I think there's, and the Bible is also very clear that the bribes come from sinful people trying to pervert justice, and God is a God of justice. He is just. And he does what is just, and he calls us to act justly and not to take bribes. So you do have prohibitions on that. And that's why it's comparative is like a magic stone, kind of mm -hmm. that impenetrable bullet. Right. But in the end, when we think about it, bribes gets us nowhere except judgment. Yeah, absolutely. Well, we are going to end it here tonight. It's been a long day for me. Uh, and so I'm going to 
close this one down early on time, so to speak, just a little bit off. But uh, instead of going another 30 minutes or so. The excursus uh, on testing and Bible translations. The 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 rabbit trails on Bible translation and testing. Yeah, it did. It did. But it's okay. It's all right. So we've got... uh, Hopefully. We'll get into it again next week. We'll pick up where we left off and we'll start off in verse nine. But that has been G220 Radio for tonight. And so until next time, God bless and goodbye.